This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Prime Minister Trudeau says that he has uh, not only a plan B, but a C, D, E, and F in case the U.S. decides to uh, bail out of the NAFTA agreement. It seems that, you know, uh, the whole Montreal scenario with the Montreal sessions, it seems that uh, things have a little bit more of a positive spin on it. What has really changed, or is it just at the end of the day, um, push is coming to shove, and the rhetoric, uh, you know, money talks, BS walks. I don't know. Is that what's happening here? Let's bring in Ken Lester of Lester Asset Management Incorporated and professor in the Faculty of Management, McGill University, and with us now. Ken, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. You're very welcome. Uh, why are we? First of all, do you think we are more optimistic after the Montreal sessions, and why do you think that is? Well, first of all, I, I don't think we really have enough any information or enough information to, to make a judgment like that. They're being pretty circumspect in terms of what they're revealing, only that the talks continue, which means that, you know, they're not coming, obviously, to any kind of resolve. So from that point of view, I'd say people should be, as days go by and we don't have a deal, it should be seen as negative. Uh, maybe you're, you've heard some stuff that I haven't heard, but uh, I haven't heard the anything. tone just seemed to be more positive, and they're you know they're not scrapping these talks; they keep extending right. them. Is there not a more positive tone coming out of Montreal? I, you know, I think a lot of that is the gamemanship that's going on, and I yeah. think that because uh, you remember the last time when somebody came out and said, uh, um, you know, I thought we made some progress, and then somebody else uh, it wasn't Krista Freeland, but two other people, and then the other one said. Uh, no, you know, I, I don't know what meeting he was at. It doesn't, yeah. you know, it, it's, they, I think it's sort of, uh, there's a script that they're trying to stick to and some deviate from the script perhaps. But, you know, I, you know, to me, this is really, this is all a game for, for that orangutan in, in the White House. I yeah. can't even say his name. And, and I'm an American, by the way. So, uh, and I have cousins and aunts and uncles who voted for him. So who are, you know, I can never speak to again, you know, for the rest of my life. <laughs> What's that family dinner like? <laughs> exactly. No, it's 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 horrible. I mean, I think this is like the Civil War all over again. You know, you heard a, how you know the families were divided. You know, mm. sons against sons and things like that. And it's 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 very similar. I mean, it's an incredible phenomena. Uh, I think we're gonna there's gonna be a plethora of books afterwards. You know, all these mea culpas. Yeah. You see, Joe Scarborough yesterday came out. You see, Sean Spicer came out and said, I I, I you know I ruined my family's reputation. I, I mm. lied for you know I shouldn't have lied and. So it's starting now. The cracks are forming. But anyways, NAFTA is what we're talking about. Uh, is it more rhetoric than policy at this point? And have, is that the, the point, that, that we've just gotten used to this now? Yeah, yeah. I think that, as many people say, that the, the, the big guy down there doesn't even know what's going on, doesn't even care or, or, or bother to understand the details. Mm. He just wants a win. He just wants to be able to say, I got a better deal, you know? And so I think that's how the deal will be formed. They've got to structure something where it looks like he's got a win, and yet it doesn't really change too much at the end of the day. Does uh, he know what a win is? Well, he just has he, uh, No, I don't think so. He just, you know, somebody will, they'll spin it for him that he, you know, mm -hmm. that he has a win. I mean, I, exactly. I don't think he even understands the, the let alone the minutiae, I don't think he even understands the, the sort of the, the macro of why we have trade agreements and things like that. Uh, something like 36 states, uh, uh, and I may be off on that number, but certainly the majority of them say, we don't want any part of dismantling NAFTA. Of course, it needs modernized, needs updated, but, you know, th this is valuable to us. Right. We don't want this scrapped. Exactly. Doesn't that pretty much say it right there? I mean, I mean, I, can, I, I mean, doesn't that put you for in a certain... One would think, one would think. But, you know, um, in fairness to that situation from, from the other point of view, is that there's winners and losers in any kind of trade deal like this, obviously, because, you know, they're, they're negotiated things. So uh, we'll buy your milk and you sell us your this and, you know, right. that kind of thing. So within the states, there are, there are states that win with the current NAFTA and states that lose. Remember that famous yeah. when he was in Wisconsin with the dairy farmers, you know, and, and catering to them. And they were saying, like, for... For you know, 500 dairy farmers, he's scrapping NAFTA that you know took mm -hmm. you know such a complicated deal and so on. So uh, uh, that's not so unusual. I think within Canada, probably there are provinces that might want to, you know radical changes to NAFTA because it'll help their situation. I'm not sure, but you know likely the case. Canada seems very prepared. It's certainly been all hands on deck, uh, despite your what political party you belong to. Uh, is this just a matter of time and just holding your ground? 
Well, let's sort of speculate. I do this. I did this with my students uh, earlier this week. You know, what if uh, uh, you know they they just say, okay, NAFTA is dead. Now that doesn't mean that trade between Canada and the U.S. stops. And in fact, um, there obviously there would then be a kind of a round two of negotiations of tariffs and things like that. So, but temporarily, I think there would be you know nothing for a while at least. And so you know, business just continues. And then, but what it does is it affects decisions going forward. Yeah. And and so a Canadian who's thinking about getting into a certain business that right now is treated favorably by NAFTA, you know, would reconsider, obviously. And so that's, that's the ramifications. It's more, you know, in the future. Now, but even that, I mean, somebody's going to buy our goods, and, and, you know, there are other countries that need our goods, and the U.S. needs a lot of our goods. So I, I think that uh, this is, again, just, it's mostly showmanship. It's mostly, you know, he, he, he got a lot of um, sort of, um, you know, benefit from, um, getting Americans all scared about all these deals they have, and you know, and the Brexit breaking up too is kind of a good precedent for this. So he's just trying to look like the hero coming in and saying, "Oh, good, you inv- you voted for me because now I'm going to rewrite all our rules, all all our deals, and they're going to be better for the United States." You know, uh, he certainly does like putting his brand on anything, uh, you know, on everything, erasing whatever was there previously, even if it's the same, and then just putting his brand on right, it. Exactly. You, you mentioned business being caught in the middle of this. Won't that expedite all of this? Won't that cut through the rhetoric? Because at the end of the day, as you mentioned, there's lots of businesses that are in limbo here. You Again, one would think, and it's certainly shooting himself in the foot because our American businesses in the same boat. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, logic should dictate these things. In fact, <clears throat> another one of my not favorite people, Brian Mulroney, you might have heard what he said yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but w- one thing that he said that was quite smart was that, uh, you know, we didn't get NAFTA by accident. It didn't just uh, happen. You know, it happened because it was necessity was the mother of invention. We needed to, you know, to put something in place so that we could work t- together with and so on. So, you know, and that's business dictating, you know, we... <clears throat> let's let's both make more money. You take off this tariff, we'll take off this tariff, and and we're both you know, and it's a win-win situation kind of thing. So that should you're absolutely right, and and it, it that those are the only things that should matter. Um, how can we make this most efficient? In fact, you'd think that there'd be an algorithm that we could throw in all the hmm. you know the different factors, and they would tell us what 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 the optimal deal would be, you know, between us and and the U.S. and Mexico, and you know. Maybe at the end of the day, that's what they'll do. I, I'm not sure. Considering uh, President Trump, uh, President Trump's uh, technological uh, technological wizardry, he he should have access to all of that with his, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, you talked about Brian Mulroney. Uh, he sort of came across as the knowledgeable elder there, almost as if he was kind of scolding Trump, you know, using right. names like Reagan and Bush right. and Clinton. Right. We put all this together. It doesn't right. matter the party. Where the heck are you on all right. of this? Right. Right. Uh, what are your thoughts on his performance in all of this? Well, I'm, I'm, I've never been a Mulroney fan. I think that uh, he was one of the greediest of, you know, sort of self-serving of all the prime ministers in my lifetime, at least. And even though I'm an American, I, I basically uh, grew up in Montreal, so I'm, uh, you know, I've spent most of my life here, and I'm 61 now, so I've been here, uh, you know, for quite a few prime ministers. Anyways, all to say that, uh, and then when he supported Trump early on, you know, then he really bothered me, and I was really upset with him, and, you know, so this is, now, then I thought, oh, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be eating your words when he scraps NAFTA, like he promised he would in the campaign. Now you're going to, you know, now he's going to kill the the very thing that you know, sort of your 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 namesake, your legacy here, and uh, uh, so I I don't know. I mean, I uh, maybe he's turned against Trump. Have you heard? I mean, it, no, I haven't. Originally, and, and, he supported him, but you're right. He was scolding him and he was uh, belittling him. And he well, was, it was as if he was almost daring him to yeah, go ahead yeah. and cancel it. He goes, "You got all these states that are in favor of it, and right. here's the here's the presidential legacy right. around NAFTA. Are you going to be the guy that?" <laughs> It yeah, takes yeah, it all no, into I, the dumper. Uh, you're exact. That's the way I read it too, and and especially he was he was acting almost like like his father or yeah. a fatherly figure. You know, oh, you young ones don't know what to do, and you know, uh, we we you know we painstakingly put this together, and yes, it needs some adjustments, and and of course, I mean, any deal, uh, you know, as time goes on, and uh, you know, situations change and circumstances change, and and the deal should be. Uh, um, you know, massaged and so on. So I think at the end of the day, that's what's going to happen. But we need to, we need to give uh, the big guy uh, some kind of a win. So they're, you know, like call it something else. You know, right. so it's the same thing like with Obamacare, with the you know Affordable Care Act. He just, 
you know, he just wanted to get Obama. He just wanted to screw Obama for all the, those bad jokes. Did you see that uh, that dinner where Obama was making fun of? Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So, you know, he was just <laughs> this was getting back time. Um, do you think at the end he can just rebrand this and sell it to the American people and everyone will buy it? Well, that's a good question. So, for example, let's say it's the same exact deal. Uh, but he says, we got to win, I got it adjusted, you know, and, but he says to Canada, you know, don't, don't say anything, I'll give you the same deal, but don't, you know, mention, mm. but obviously some people in the States would figure it out, some reporters or some Democrats would, you know, say, wait a minute, this is the same deal, and so, you know, they would sort of, so there has to be some plausible kind of, uh, you know, remember what happened with Mexico? Uh, with the wall where at first when Mexico said, we're not paying for this stupid wall, mm. then that Trump had a meeting with him where he said, listen, you know, yeah, you can't say yeah. that because it makes me look bad. So yeah. just don't worry about it. I'll pay for the wall, but you just, yeah. you know, play along, you know. So I think he's going to try, and maybe he's even tried something like that with Canada, and I, I can't imagine him trying that with Krista Freeland, but it's, uh, you know, maybe he has, but it, it, you see the the circumstances here, I think it's too public, too many people know about it. So there has to be some actual victory i think for him to be able to agree and 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 then uh you know do you think do you think trump's uh mention of nafta during the speech last night had a um uh, a calmer tone to it he talked a lot about fair trade as opposed to just killing it right right and saying you know the reciprocal and all that yeah he didn't seem as combative yeah yeah i mean he sounded like there was room for some negotiation there and uh, you know, and again, he's sort of going to say, "Oh, you know, I, I improved the deal. You know, we're we're richer now because of my uh, my deal making." Uh, your thought—I can't let you go without, especially knowing that you were uh, are, are an American. What were your thoughts on the speech last night? I, I, you know, for me, it's it's he's either disgusting or horribly disgusting. So, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 but, but having said that. I think the speech wasn't bad. I think it was about as good a speech as he could give. Yeah, and, and he stuck to it. Yeah, and the fact that he didn't improvise, the fact that he, you know, you could, as somebody was saying, you can tell when he's thinking because his voice changes and everything. Yeah. He had that kind of stone face last night. Mm-hmm. But his his handlers love that because, uh, you know, the last thing he wanted. Remember, did you watch after on Fox? They were all, like, looking at the camera saying, please don't tweet tonight. You yeah. made a nice speech. You know, <laughs> don't ruin it now, you know, with a tweet and so on. And how bizarre is that, that, you know, after a, a solid performance, I mean, he can look at that, give him credit for that. After that, people are just waiting for him to, to right. load the gun and shoot himself right. in the foot. How how. How pathetic, eh? And this is the this is our president. This is this is our best and our brightest, you know. Uh, there seem to be lots of applause. As if the louder we are, uh, then <laughs> right, it must be good. Yeah, right. It almost sounded like a you know like a college pep rally. Well, you can be sure they were told beforehand, yeah. uh, especially because they knew the Democrats weren't going to clap, as the Republicans never clap for Obama. I mean, mm-hmm. we know that goes on. So you could be sure they were told, you know, clap loud. You know, they probably even piped in clapping sound or something, you know, mm. to emphasize it. Who knows? So uh, your thoughts on Christia Freeland's performance in all of this? I'm very impressed with yeah. her. And um, I have uh, my, my sister's a, a judge and a lawyer in Toronto, and her husband's a prominent lawyer. And they they're, they know Krista apparently uh, somewhat, you know, sort of socially. And they, they, they speak the world of her. They think that she is, you know, one of the smartest people they know and, you know, Canada's in fantastic hands with her, and, you know, they're, I mean, I guess it's no, you know, they're already talking that she's probably our next prime minister. And wow. So, yeah, she's apparently quite a, she was a Rhodes Scholar and mm. apparently, like, you know, really brilliant and really, uh, and a nice person, too, like, not, uh, you know, not somebody who's uh, full of herself and stuff. So, yeah, I, everything I hear about her, and I mean, I'm not privy, obviously, to what's going on behind closed doors there, but it, I think we're about as well represented as we possibly can be. Uh, certainly not moved very quick, uh, 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 very, uh, uh, she sticks to her track, very, very stern, very, um, doesn't get moved off script very often. Right, 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 exactly, and doesn't look like she gets emotional. Not flustered. Yeah, not flustered, good, good, good way to say that, yeah. So, uh, what is your feeling as these negotiations move on? You sound a little more pessimistic at the beginning of this conversation. Well, Again, I, not so much. Uh, I think there's the, the 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 deal that they finally agree on will be uh, slightly worse for Canada. They're going to spin it to make it sound like it's way better for the United States. 
Um, and, and, you know, I don't think much is going to change. I think this is all of, you know, for theater, it's political theater. And he, you know, remember in the election, oh, you're, I'm going to have so many wins, you're going to be sick of winning. And, you know, that it's been anything but uh, so many wins. So I think now he's trying, looking forward, especially with the elections coming up in November, the midterms, he's, uh, you know, he wants to make, uh, and by the way, on that point, um, you can see very clearly, and I didn't just think this up, I, some, one of the commentators mentioned it uh, a few nights ago, that uh, this whole dreamer thing was is exactly the same. Basically, he takes it away, yeah. and now he's acting like the hero. He wants to be able to say in November that he not only brought back the dreamer thing, but improved on it. You know, mm-hmm. because now there's a you know a view towards citizenship and so on. So you can see what he, exactly what he's doing. He's he's it's so obvious. It's 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 like you know sort of deal making 101. And uh, and the thing is that. When when our side complains about these kinds of things, you know, the, the, like it doesn't move any deplorable. Like we're just con- we're just always preaching to the converted when we complain. In fact, the deplorables love it when they hear people whining yeah. on CNN and mm-hmm. you know, Pelosi and Schumer. They love watching those two whine, and and we're feeding right into it. So again, I. I, I don't think, I think, as you said, the business people at the end of the day will make these decisions. And who knows, there may even be uh, sort of secret, you know, cutouts, you know, where, uh, you know, two two big companies that have been already dealing with the old NAFTA rules and, and like it, you know, may, may, may agree amongst themselves, kind of like California agreeing to, you know, sort of unilateral discussions with China and other countries on, on hmm. global warming and things like that. So we may see some of that, you know, where... Where, in fact, entire states, and they talked about that, right, when they talked about the 36 states that are actually benefiting. They say some states may want to uh, almost, you know, leave, you know, deal directly with Canada and, and, and sort of like with the Brexit, you know, what's going on in Europe. So. What does this do to Donald Trump's credibility? Because at the beginning of these negotiations, everybody said, you got to be prepared because he'll yank, he'll yank this right out from underneath everybody. But it seems people are now understanding how to deal with this guy, how to play this guy. I mean, all you had to do is read the book and you got it figured out. Right. Uh, at what point does Donald Trump's uh, at what point does he become a detriment to himself because everybody knows how to play him? Yeah. It's like the boy who cried wolf. Well, I mean, uh, you know. I, Are we I, seeing it already? Yeah, where do I begin? I, yeah. I, I think that happened. Uh, that, that ship has sailed already. No, I, I mean, we're going to look back on this time and be amazed. You know, we're going to think, how is it possible? And David Frum, you know, not one of my favorite people. He's, you know, a speechwriter for George Bush and so on. But he wrote a great book about having the the uh, the, the guardrails that there were guardrails in place to avoid this kind of thing happening. And every time Trump would come up against a guardrail, one of the stupid and the ones I'm really upset with are the enablers and like the Chris Christie's mm. of this world. You know, the legitimate people who kind of gave him credibility just when he was about to be thrown out. And 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 that's who those are the evil people. But that's the kind of um, you know, we're going to look back and go, it, this is an incredible, and it was an incredible confluence. Uh, Bill Maher said it best. He said, Hillary and Donald are running against the only people on this planet that they could possibly beat. You know, like they're both <laughs> so horrible. <laughs> will we learn from this or will we see more well, of this? The, that's the, the best question. And I, and I hope, you know, these things, uh, as you know, go in swing. So mm. we had a black president. Oh, my God, you know, the deplorables were like going crazy. You know, the world's coming to an end. We have a Muslim black president. So that brought in Trump. Now Trump's uh, craziness yeah. is going to bring mm. in probably, uh, you know, a liberal woman or something. You know, it'll, you, so that, that's kind of the silver lining. And here's another real silver lining for me, particularly, is the one thing I can't stand about my, my own country is that right-wing Tea Party, you know, uh, uh, you know, very strictly religious evangelical types, and and they can never open their mouth now because you know their two things were Russia's the evil empire and family values. Hmm. You know, that was the two things they stood for. Reagan, those are the two things. I love it when Trump brings up Reagan because he's like he's the anti the anti yeah, really. you know, to Reagan. So <laughs> those people, the Huckabees and the Santorums, even though they're still talking now, which amazes me because. You know, how can you defend, uh, you know, pussy grabbing and stuff like that? But th- these guys are going to, you know, like when uh, Ivanka said there's a special place in hell for, you know, there's a special place in hell for the Republicans who were pro, you know, family mm-hmm. values and then supported Trump. And, and so they're the ones who are really being punished. So, you know, if we can get through this sort of without too much damage, you know, there's going to be benefit to, uh, to you know, rational, reasonable, reasonable people going forward. 
Ken Lester has been with us, Lester Asset Management, professor in the Faculty of Management, McGill University. Ken, thanks for the time and insight. You're Much very appreciated. Welcome. Fascinating. I, I enjoy talking to you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in James Campbell, distinguished professor in the Department of Political Science, University of Buffalo. Uh, his new book, his latest book, Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America. He is with us now. James, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. I'm glad to be on your program. So what were your thoughts on the speech? Uh, I, I thought it was much more positive than, uh, suspe- than perhaps more uh, some expected. Your thoughts? Uh, I agree. I, I think it was a, a very good uh, speech. And I think, um, you know, part of that is I, I think maybe that uh, because of the president's tweeting and um, uh, his penchant for you know getting into uh, fights with people, uh, you know, it sets an expectation. But this is a very unifying speech. Actually, I think it's one of the better, uh, perhaps the best uh, State of the Union speech that uh, I've heard in uh, in some time. It was unifying. It it um, um, highlighted. Uh, it was an optimistic speech it highlighted uh, the successes in the in the country uh, without bragging about himself too much uh, and and it, it was also principled um, you know there were areas where he clearly disagreed uh, uh, with with the Democrats and uh, but he reached out to them at the same time and I think uh, that was it was a very smart uh, speech and he stuck to the script which was nice to see. Uh, are you surprised he stuck to the script? Well, you know, uh, I think last year when he spoke to, to uh, Congress, he did that. He so he he can, uh, you know, on occasion remain disciplined and uh, and not be um, you know so pugilistic about uh, about things. So, uh, but you never know with him. So you know what. You know, uh, so he keeps you keeps everybody guessing about whether he'll, uh, you know, just have an unforced error and sort of take somebody on in the speech that he, uh, you know, really doesn't need to do. But I thought this he was very disciplined, uh, and the speech was very well written. I think it was balanced. Uh, he made a very good uh, use of the guests. Uh, yeah, that was good. Their uh, you know they they fit in with the substantive points that he was making. I mean that Korean um, guy who uh, who was tortured and uh, managed to, to 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 work his way out of uh, out of China mm. and it was really heart wrenching. As was the, uh, the, the the two uh, the parent uh, parents yeah. that, uh, whose whose daughters were. Uh, were killed by uh, illegal uh, immigrants. I think all those fit with his, um, and, and there was it wasn't schmaltzy. It was sincere, and uh, I thought um, I thought really handled very well. Is this a reset for Trump, or uh, you know, as many were saying, just wait after after such a speech? It was then everyone's attention was turning to Twitter, waiting to see how he was going to uh, load the gun and shoot himself in the foot. But that never happened either, or hasn't to date. It hasn't happened yet, right? I mean, you know, there's been a lot of resets for somebody who's only been in office for a year. We'll see whether uh, he is, um, you know, uh, getting the. Uh, whether he's learning from this, whether he will maybe uh, bite his tongue every once in a while and, and not say um, things that are sort of inflammatory for kind of without purpose, you know. Uh, you know, it's sometimes I, I don't think he really appreciates um, how his words are going to be scrutinized, perhaps twisted, uh, but certainly um, looked on uh, very seriously. And sometimes his flip remarks are, uh, are, are not uh, you know, well considered. And um, so maybe he's, maybe he's picked up on some of this. We'll see. I mean, my betting would be that within a week or so, he, he will say something or tweet something 
that uh, gets him off message, but uh, that's been the pattern so far. You bring up a valid point, though, here, James. Do you think he will learn from the response to this speech? I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, it was done well uh, and is receiving favorable uh, response as a result of that. Will he learn from that? Well, that's the uh, that's the the uh, the question um, that I don't think any any of us can really answer. Um, the the track record is that um, he won't, but uh, may, you know, there may be a cumulative effect. I think Republicans have to hope uh, that uh, that he does learn from this. You know, the the polling uh, data. You know, but, you know, I communicated with some of my. Um, friends who are clearly Democrats and liberal Democrats at that, and they were just saying, well, this is, he's doing well with his base on this, and, and, and the rest of the public won't appreciate it. But when you look at the CBS News poll, uh, uh, I don't know whether you, you've seen that, but it, you know the approval of the, of the poll was 75%, and that included nearly half the Democrats who watched the speech hmm. um, also um, were impressed by it. Uh, approved of it. So, you know, if, if he sees those numbers, uh, maybe he'll figure this is the way to go. Uh, you know, this and that's the fake news that's saying that, James. How is he going to react? <laughs> How is he going to react to that? Well, I guess we'll say even a even a, a, a blind pig finds a truffle every morning. <laughs> uh, but, but I hope I hope he doesn't. I hope he understands that this is this is you know if he's disciplined, the, the message that he's conveying. Um, if he if he sticks to that and, and avoids a lot of the nonsense and silliness and uh, the wild uh, talk that sometimes he uh, he, he adds on to it, uh, the, the core message I think uh, resonates with with a lot of Americans. It would be interesting and, to see if it would be interesting to see if someone else gave this speech what the response would be. Yes, it would. I mean, you know why talk about low expectations and you know it's hard to set aside your expectations completely in in evaluating this but i i think on its own i think it was uh even if you had paul ryan giving the speech or or mitt romney or someone else i think uh i think he it, it would have been well received i mean the content was unifying and I think the Democrats really misplayed their hands on this. When whenever there was a cutaway to Nancy Pelosi, oh my, or I have Bernie that Sanders or Chuck Schumer, they looked like uh, they were so sour, and you know, on things yeah. that should be uniting all Americans. And, and you know, you know, give him, you know, go along with him on those things. And, uh, but they looked, they looked like. Uh, Somebody stole their dog or something. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I had Pelosi written down, and I was going to ask you about that, James. I mean, honestly, she looked like she she um, she she was looked like she was just very very upset. My, my goodness, she, she looked like she was chewing gum. She was so upset. Yeah, I I, I agree completely. I uh, you know I I would have thought that the Democrats would have. Um, wanted um, a new leader in the House after, um, I mean, Pelosi's uh, led them down, the, led them to several uh, big defeats, and yet they, uh, yet they stay with her. I suppose that's why they had um, Kennedy uh, give the, uh, the, the rebuttal uh, speech after, uh, that is to give some kind of a fresh uh, face, even if it's an old name, uh, at least it's um, you know it's not the same tired uh, leadership that um, that that the party's had for for some time now. Although it is from one of the founding families, um, tell us about Joe Kennedy and and what your thoughts were on not only selecting him but what he had to say. Well, yeah, I I actually didn't get to, see, to hear his um, his uh, rebuttal. Uh, but I read about it afterward. It sounded as though he was um, painting a very bleak picture of of the nation, and uh, and I think that's hard to do. I mean, that's a, a, a you know, most uh, you know. While the polls indicate that most Americans still think that the country's in the moving in the wrong direction, uh, not on the right track, 
um, there is some sense of greater optimism, um, and I think that's what people want to hear. And there's a sense that, um, you know, if you look at the stock market, if you look at the growth rates in GDP, the unemployment rates, uh, particularly among, uh, you know, disadvantaged groups, uh, all of those things are things that ought to be celebrated and should make people hopeful. If you then come along and say, you know, basically, you know, douse the uh, optimism, uh, I think you're, you know, that's a hard sell. How do uh, the Democrats just change direction here? Uh, It still seems, you know, as much as Donald Trump is, they are fighting the last election as well. Uh, You know, obviously Donald Trump was put in there to uh, disrupt uh, anti-establishment change. I mean, we've seen uh, more than one Bush, uh, Clinton's, uh, Kennedy's, uh, and who knows, maybe even now Trump's. Uh, when is it time to dig into something fresh and new? And and maybe Kennedy's that answer, but still, you know, comes with that old elite sort of uh, image and such. Why don't they just go back to square one and rebuild? Well, I first I'd have to disagree with you about Trump to a little, to some extent anyway, that I think he, he won the election, not because he was a fresh face or any of you know his leadership style. I mean, I, I think he was, uh, as his unfavorable ratings indicated, uh, right up to the to election day. I think, um, you know, he was uh, in, in uh, a detriment to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the ticket. I think he won because um, the nation um, thought the economy was weak or poor, so I think the exit polls indicated um, over 60% thought the economy was uh, weak or poor, and that uh, about the same percentage thought the country had been generally moving in the wrong direction. So they wanted, it was time for a change. Mm-hmm. And so he was there. He was, he, was a, he was probably the wrong candidate at the right place. Mm. And uh, so I think if the, if the Democrats, um, and his approval numbers are still dismal, you know, maybe, he could, maybe the economy... And events like last night can can help turn that around some. But I think if the Democrats simply pose, uh, um, make this a referendum about President Trump, um, I think they're, they'll be in. They probably won't do that badly in, in 2018. Hmm. I think they may. They'll at least contest the House. The Senate is much more difficult for them because they have so many seats up to defend. Uh, can um, can Trump take credit for the economy? I mean, Walmart came out and said, thanks to the tax cuts, we've been giving people raises. I mean, which is very odd because we're, you know, we're in the midst of uh, here in Ontario in a debate over increasing the minimum wage. Uh, of course, Trump announces a tax cut, large companies saying, great, now we can give our employees more. Uh, can he take credit for that? And that must really resonate with, with voters. Right. Well, I think uh, he's, you know, it's always in the first uh, first year or so of any presidency. You know, it's always a question of whether the economy is what the president inherited or a result of, of their policies and anticipation of their policies. Um, I think uh, it'll be some kind of mix. I mean, Democrats will say, you know, he inherited a, a reviving economy from uh, President Obama. Um Republicans will say it was anticipation of the tax cuts and reduced uh, uh, regulations of the economy and you know, prospects for better trade deals and, and all of that. So I think it will be some kind of a blend of, of the two. Um, and, uh, but he'll, get some, he'll certainly get a good deal of the credit. Um, and um, you know, he can point, and Republicans can point, to specific policies that were designed to uh, stimulate economic growth. James Campbell has been with us, professor in the Department of Political Science, University of Buffalo, Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America is his latest book. James, thanks for the uh, insight as always. Much appreciated. Great. Always nice to be on your program. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
Let's Talk. And, of course, uh, Mental Health Week this week. A lot of people uh, uh, and a lot of information available trying to bring all of this to our attention and, of course, uh, move the discussion forward. A campaign by the Canadian Mental Health Association entitled Erase the Difference wants to see mental illness treated the same as the flu. Uh, No, it doesn't mean you get a shot for that. But maybe some of the money used for that shot could be used for mental health. To talk more about all of this, Gary Derenfeld is with us. YourSocialWorker.com to find out more. He's with us. Gary, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. Happy to be talking about mental health, mental illness. And, and something that's, you know, relatively positive as opposed to a bad situation that's happened that I want you to reflect on. <laughs> <laughs> that is a pleasure, my friend. <laughs> so we started, well, I don't know how long mental health and the whole Let's Talk thing's been going on, but it's certainly been prevalent in the last uh, few years. We've talked about this before. Uh, we're obviously uh, losing the stigma bit by bit to, to talk about this stuff are we generating the talk into actual action oh isn't that the sixty four thousand dollar question so you know i'm a little long in the tooth that at almost 62 years of age i've been working in mental health since uh the late 70s early 80s and mental health has our mental illness quite frankly it's you know we want to treat mental illness and, and produce mental health Anyways, these services have always been the poor cousin in healthcare forever. And, and then the poorer cousin to that is children's mental health. So, you know, when we look at, uh, at spending, so much more is spent uh, to address physical health than uh, mental health issues. Has it come uh, any distance? Yeah, I'd say it's come some distance. But it's still not equivalent, and we still have tremendous stigma associated with mental illness, such that, you know, people, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Hey, guys, you know, if you have a mental illness, you actually don't have bootstraps to pull yourself up, you know. Yeah. Yes. So, so we still have a long way to go. Long, people don't, short, long way to go. People don't understand that people who may suffer from a mental illness may not think about this as logically as you do. Um, you know, I often hear this when people talk about suicide, and they say, "Well, how could the person do this? Uh, how could they leave the family? How could they? How could they? How could they?" And these are not questions that these people are asking themselves, are they? No, not at all. You know, if you are dealing uh, with a mental illness, it, or if you are so overwhelmed by these tremendous, awful feelings or life experiences that you don't see a solution. You know, that's when, when suicide is triggered, and it looks like a viable solution to bring relief to oneself for the pain of that mental anguish and suffering. Uh, can we treat mental illness like it's the flu? It sounds uh, odd at the beginning because we don't know where we're going with this, but it all comes down to money. And, you know, we, we talk about constantly about a health care system that's stretched beyond its limits, trying to provide, uh, you know, free health care to, to Canadians and such. How do you add this other element? But, you know, which is obviously just as important as, as the physical aspect. Well, it's all about priorities, isn't it? And, and there uh, will be a little bit of uh, robbing uh, Peter to pay Paul in this, in terms of setting our health spending priorities. And in the past, those priorities have focused on physical well-being. But the truth of the matter is, if we can focus also on mental well-being, there is a payback to the person, uh, to the society, and to the economy as well. So, you know, I don't like this either or that it's physical versus mental illness. What are we going to pay for? It has to be that end. It has to be both. And there has to be more equity uh, in terms of how we how we look at these things, and not on the basis of bias. Uh, interesting comment from a family, and, and this all goes back to the stigma and, and how we all think of this. And boy, this line from them seems it seems quite powerful. This was in uh, a, a CBC article. It says, uh, and this was in regard to a family that lost uh, their 20-year-old son, died by suicide three years ago, basketball star. Quote, the one thing that we tell people is Jacob died of a life-threatening illness. Mm. 
Whether it's cancer or heart disease, etc., mental illness is a disease as well, and it can be life-threatening. If people don't get treated, don't get help, it's dangerous. They could die. We don't think of it that way. I mean, well, you know, we, we think of, oh, my goodness, you get the C word, you get cancer. Uh, what mu- must that diagnosis be like? But what about the people who feel that th- their world is is worthless and not going anywhere? I mean, these people are, are just as, as susceptible as anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that I, I hadn't read that before. That was so uh, perfectly stated that our son died, you know, from a life-threatening illness. Yeah. And when we start thinking of mental health in that way, we do want to rush with aid and defense and support which is so important to the recovery and or management of uh, mental illness. And, you know, you can prove this by go to any friend, stand in a group of people that you know and say, I've got cancer. Huh. And then stand, and, and, or, and for, stand in front of another group and say, I've got mental illness, and watch the different response. Yeah, the, the, they'll, they'll scatter uh, with the second and they'll... They'll be awkward, but they'll be to at your side with the former. Yeah. And, and so that's what Bell Let's Talk Day is all about. So we're having these conversations to point out these biased differences that, that have to do with our perception and our attitudes, not with the, um, the illness per se. So when, when we change our lens, when we look at this as an illness, rather than somebody's attitude, we, we want to treat it differently. Um, we want to destigmatize. We want people to come out. Look, you know, one of those spokespersons is Clara Hughes, phenomenal Canadian who herself suffered serious depression, who upon um, uh, coming out with it received tremendous support and has driven this conversation uh, throughout Canada. We need more of that. Uh, this is not far off this, the conversation we were having last week in regard to schools, guidance counselors and schools, and how the role of the guidance counselor has changed. Mm. In our day, it was more of career planning. Nowadays, it's, it's, it's as much uh, mental health. Uh, there's another example of, gee, if there was funding there, look what could be done. Yeah, absolutely. So the more we can educate people um, in those kinds of roles, be they the teachers, be they the uh, guidance counselors, these are the first responders in, in the world of, of um, youth and students with mental health problems. If only they were trained enough to recognize, triage, and refer, we would be saving a lot of tragedy and helping people lead far more uh, productive, healthy lives. Uh, there was an interesting point. You, you talked about first responders, uh, and I, I got an interesting note from somebody last week as we were talking about this, and they wanted us to do a show, and, and we're pursuing this. Um, they, see, they, they said that dealing with their child with mental illness, the first responders were great. They were quick to identify uh, an issue and, 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 and push the person down one pathway as opposed to another. Th- this mother said the problem was after that. Once they got into the health system, they couldn't get their kid help. First response, the police, EMS, all those people, uh, you know, thoughtful and helped out, but they seemed to get lost in the sauce once they got into the system. Lost in the sauce. But you're absolutely right. Uh, People call me in private practice, pay out of pocket, because the wait lists can be anywhere from six months to several years for mental health services in the community. And, you know, we look at wait lists for things like a hip replacement, things like uh, cardiac care. If we applied the same lens to mental health services, uh, I think people would see that we are sorrowfully behind and that we need more money pumped into this so that we can more adequately respond. Can you imagine the first responder does a great job identifying and referring, and then there you are feeling uh, suicidal, lost, confused, and you're told it's like six months to a year and a half. Hmm. 
What does that do for your mental health? And it's interesting because we've seen the way the opioid crisis has taken over uh, the discussion, and and we've seen how uh, we've tried to tailor our response to this huge, growing problem. It's almost as if mental illness is like that. It's something that's hiding in the weeds, waiting to come out and go. And then all of a sudden everybody says, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? We have to do something about it. And when we look at the opioid crisis, uh, Scott, underneath that for many persons, underneath the addictions for many persons, are uh, trauma and mental health issues arising from the trauma. So why do we have to get to the point where we're giving everyone the medication to carry on their person in the street to to help revive, why aren't we intervening earlier in that chain when people come forward and say, look, I'm having trouble coping? Those dollars that would go in earlier could spare lives and millions of dollars later on. It's interesting with the Canadian Mental Health Association Uh, calling this campaign Erase the Difference. And, you know, we've talked on this show many times about all of this, but as I mentioned that quote to you about from these parents talking about their child's death and saying he died of a life-threatening illness, even that positions this in a way that I've never thought of before. Yeah, it's a whole new conversation, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, it, it speaks to the urgency and the need for treatment, as opposed to uh, being judgmental, there's, you know, it's, quote, all in your head, which in some cases it is, but medically. Yeah. <clears throat> and and, and, and it, it, it turns the whole dialogue around. The degree to which we continue to have people who, who raise that different perspective, advance that perspective, hopefully, you know, come the future, we're not going to need too many more Bell Let's Talk days. Uh, Do you think that message that we've just talked about with this being a life-threatening illness will resonate? I mean, this is obviously the campaign between the Canadian or from the Canadian Mental Health uh, Association erasing the difference or erase the difference. Do you think this will take this discussion? Do you think A, it will resonate and B, it will take the discussion to a different level? Uh, So let's just say that I'm the eternal optimist and I hope that it does. My gut says it will make a difference for some. Uh, and the, the some for whom it makes a difference, hopefully they, they champion this cause and continue uh, the dialogue. You know, uh, the, there's the Me Too movement that, that is afoot now, mm-hmm. bringing out uh, the issue of uh, sexual assault, sexual violence, lack of consent, um, uh, as it primarily affects women. And there's, it's, we're in a watershed moment yeah. in history. And we need something similar in the field of mental health where, where it just so comes to the fore that we see it differently and we have this kind of seismic or paradigm shift where, where we can no longer go back to the it's in your head, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Is that a generational thing? Is this only a matter of time? Huh. You know, uh, in the past I've spoken to, there's always a new crop of children, new crop of parents. They all need to learn this again. I think this is the kind of thing that may be just a matter of time, where societally we can do that paradigm shift and start to see uh, mental illness as, as it is, as an illness, uh, equally deserving of uh, research uh, treatment and support as any other physical illness. Is this a sign of the times, uh, this rise that we're seeing in mental illness, or is this just the result of it being neglected for so long? I, you know, maybe a little bit of both. After being neglected for so long, uh, it, it, there starts to be a groundswell movement around that, but it's also a sign of the times that more and more people are starting to say, you know what, I shouldn't be feeling shame or embarrassment. Um, this doesn't have to define me, the person, who I am. I'm neither bad nor good, the result of a mental illness. I am who I am, and I have this thing afflicting me. And, and, and with that, I should equally have access to treatment, support, as anyone else with any other affliction. Uh, I'll play devil's advocate. Was there as much of this in the old days? Mental illness? Yes. Why is it such a big deal now? Huh. Good question. I actually think we're, we've seen a tremendous rise 
particularly in anxiety and depression. And, and it coincides, believe it or not, with the advent of the smartphone. So when we look at um, the incidence of anxiety in youth and adolescents and young adults, it follows the same curve as the sale of smartphones. Yeah. And, and it's not to say that smartphones themselves are the issue. It, it, it's not a microwave thing. It's a disconnect thing. The degree to which we are disconnected from one another as people, from parents to children, it creates disharmony in our lives. And, and we, we feel that, we live it, and it affects us way beyond our awareness. Who will be left to explain this other than the dying generation? <laughs> because the next generation is just going to be more of the same. So uh, now it's just old people saying, hey, you guys got to get a handle on this. But once those old people die and it's, it's just another layer of young people coming up playing, playing with, their, with their devices, uh, w- will this self-correct itself? Actually, I think it will self-correct. I think uh, young people are slowly starting to get a little smarter around the use of the devices. Um, it used to be, you know, I, I'd interview... Uh, high school students, they would sleep with their device within a foot of their head, literally. They all felt they had to be the last person to respond to any incoming message, which means you do not go to sleep. These days, uh, you know, a, a mere uh, four or five years later, uh, the same young, uh, not the same young persons, but young persons again, are now more able to shut off the device. Really? Yeah, less, less inclined to need to be the last person to, to, uh, to message back. It's not to say that, that, that I see this as a seismic shift, but I'm starting to see a bit of that shift because there has been that much more dialogue uh, about this. So is it just, you know, people clamping down on kids and saying, no, you can't do that, or are they figuring this out? I think over time, God willing, we do figure this out, and they are figuring it out. And because smartphones are now so ubiquitous, they're in almost every kid's hand, that the uniqueness is starting to wane. And now that the uniqueness is starting to wane, they're less, uh, there's less of that novelty where they feel they have to be so on top and forever uh, attached to that. It's, and, and so our, our young persons are starting to use their devices far more broadly than just communication between themselves. They're now using these devices to help organize their lives hmm. in a way that leaves you and I in the dust. Ain't that the truth. Uh, Gary Dierenfeld is with his social worker, YourSocialWorker.com, a can- uh, campaign by the Canadian Mental Health Association entitled Erase the Difference Wants to See Mental Illness Treated the same way as we view the fuel, uh, the fuel, the flu. <laughs> Gary, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. Great to be with you, Scott. All the best. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.